I'm Emma Louise Coffey and you're welcome to the Dairy Edge, the Chagas Dairy Podcast. We're bringing you the latest information, insights and opinion to improve dairy farm performance. Continuing our dairy farm in review with Chagas Director Jerry Boyle, Specialist Abigail Ryan and Head of Animal and Grassland Research Pat Dillon, who joined me at the National Dairy Conference at the start of December to discuss the key issues affecting dairy farmers. And I first asked Abigail about the lessons learned from the Greenfield Project. The key one was to see research um, actually on a commercial farm, to see how it worked. I mean, we took part in different trials as well. I suppose the three key areas of that farm were the people, the grass and the cows. So I suppose if you look at the swards, we were very particular with how the grass was managed. And you mentioned earlier about, you know, how can you make more money or cash in on that? And I suppose between the swards and the breeding, it meant five or six centiliter more um, to us inside the farm gate up there. Uh, So the grass and the cows and the people, without the people, we wouldn't have had, you know, the business or we wouldn't have had it. It wouldn't have been as successful Uh, for expanding farmers and for dairy startup farmers. Well, they would have seen how you could get into dairy in as low a cost as possible. Um, Obviously, it mightn't have been for everybody, but there was lessons there for everyone to be gained. Yes, we did start off very low cost. Looking back over the years, maybe some things we could have done differently. But at the time, um, it was 2009, milk price was at its lowest and it would have been impossible to get 100% finance. So like money was limiting, so we had to start somewhere. And also the other big lesson or the questions asked over the years would be, would you go all heifers or would you have went with cows, which is what Greenfield did. At the time, um, it was before quotas were abolished, so it would have been difficult to go and get 350 heifers at that stage. So disease was the big thing they focused on. Um, would you go with heifers or cows? The question is now. Most dairy startups will go with heifers, but we would have not had a positive cash flow for a couple of years because they are lower production. We spoke about EBI earlier. Probably genetics have improved even since then. So the newer um, or the, the heifers nowadays have a better production potential. I suppose the list goes on and on um, as to what, you know, were the biggest lessons there. And, and, and I, to add to it, I think the principle of Chagas having a demonstration farm, I, I think is really important. I mean, the, the Greenfield farm was a real success. And uh, having, like, on the beef side, we have Newfort and, and dairy side, we have Shinnock. But green, uh, demo uh, farms, I think, are really important because we can show out there uh, the profitability and all issues in terms of labour efficiency, scale, um, it, infrastructure, the importance of infrastructure, the importance of, 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 of all the targets in terms of the KPIs, in terms of, of running an efficient dairy farm. So from that point of view, I, I think it was really critical. And it was a can real I, success. Can I just add one other point? But I want to, first of all, support what Pat has said. I mean, we, we need the equivalent of another greenfield. I mean... We have 40 to 50, I think, new entrants coming through. Isn't that right, Abigail? Nearly every year. I think this was hugely important for the new entrants uh, in learning how uh, to develop a system from scratch. Um, but the other point, and it's it's a technical point at one level, but it was the first farm that we had a true grasp of the full cost of production. Because, uh, like say, on our national farm survey and our profit monitors and so on, we're not able to capture the cost of the land, and we're not able to capture particularly the cost of, of, of labour, typically family labour. On this farm, we had full costs, and everything was transparent. And really, that's critically important if you want to 
really evaluate uh, the economics of any farm enterprise. And we had that in Greenfield. Yeah, the other thing, and it only came to life to me really recently, I was up with a dairy startup guy in Galway, and he was the only young farmer in a whole townland or village. And his best friends were two 80-year-old farmers across the way, very fragmented farm. You arrive up to this place, um, middle of nowhere, and here's a guy just gave up a really excellent job. He was very educated, come back full-time farming. He was simply sick of sitting in a car every day for four hours driving to work. So he started last year in a really, really tough year. And after driving from his farm, you would actually really feel good. And he actually used to come to Greenfield once per month. And that's where he learned how to convert his home farm and why he did. So like, even though the location was in the east of Ireland, it, it, you know, the messages came uh, right through the different corners of Ireland, even though his farm was a different type of farm. But he took a lot of lessons from Greenfield. And, and you know, you've touched on, on people on the farm, you know, and the, the, the labour input onto the farm. And, you know, we, we've all had the, the pleasure of attending a demonstration day or attending with a discussion group. Talk through the people on the farm. I suppose they were key to making the Greenfield Farm a success, Abigail. Yeah, look, I would say it very black and white. Like a good person will make you 100,000 in the year. And we had excellent managers up there over the years. And they were excellent to work with. I suppose they treated the farm almost as though it was their own. Uh, which was really, really good. And their attention to detail um, was massive. Obviously, they were determined, and people would say, did you have a high staff turnover? They stayed there on average three, I think three and a half years. We had Michael Long at the start. But they moved on to different projects then. Michael Long moved on to another project, which was a larger scale farm. So he used his expertise that he learned on that farm. Same with the next manager, Tom Ling, went down to a massive conversion in Wexford. And then David Fogarty followed his footsteps afterwards. So like, it was a progression for those guys as well. And they learned a lot throughout the years. So if there is a good guy, you can't expect him to stay forever. And I, th I think that is a, it is a good sign where people are moving on and, and often, as you say, to bigger and better challenges, um, you know, as, as things go. Um, it's not necessarily a, an issue with the farm. It is natural progression that they're moving on. Um, I suppose finally to finish up and, and reflect on milk price. Milk price has declined in 2019, but looking forward, um, the outlook is potentially positive. I suppose... You know, we talk, Pat, in, in Ireland about, you know, moving away from this quota system. We are exposed to what's happening um, on the global market. Um, now, we in Ireland like to believe that we're producing, you know, a niche product, um, you know, high quality products. You know, is this um, reflected in our milk price? And, you know, can we control milk price as a result of the products we're producing? Yeah, I mean, we saw, I think, milk price uh, reduce somewhere around one and a half cents per litre this year compared to last year. Uh, the forecast for next year is at least the same, if not better. Yeah, I mean, we are we are working on, on, on a world market uh, scenario. Um, efficiency is going to be always key. We're competing on a world market scenario. That's, that's the reality. The abolition of quotas, uh, I mean, has it reduced on average milk price? It probably hasn't. Uh, I mean, but uh, we're working on, on a world market scenario. Saying that, I mean, the efficiency of farm level is key, and that's what, uh, I mean, we're, what we've been talking about there uh, 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 this afternoon. But 
the other side of it, yes, from the market side is important and the grass-fed milk, uh, and, and I, I think it would be equally important in the grass-fed beef, is going to be a, a strong marketing point going forward. And, uh, and I think we can capitalise more on it. Uh, we, we're beginning to do it. Uh, and I think there's opportunities, yes, uh, to capitalise on the, on the grass aspect of. And if you look at it, the developments on the dairy industry nationally, fair enough, uh, we had a lot of investment in, in, in milk processing in recent years. And you can see the, the new phase of milk processing is very focused on cheese. And we see Lambia, we see Carberry, and we see Dairy Gold all investing on cheese going forward. So broaden the, 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 the basket of, of type products, I suppose, is important too, and cheese is important. But maybe Jerry has a comment on it. Yeah, no, when you mention cheese, I think of Brexit immediately, because uh, probably of all our dairy products, cheese is the most exposed because of its reliance on the UK market. The obvious answer is, uh, is to diversify. Uh, but Europe aren't going to buy our cheddar um, any more than what they're currently purchasing. So you have to look to the east, to Asia and China in particular. And there's a massive challenge there which will require a lot of innovation in product development. And we're working on that. Um, we have a, a project called, as you know, uh, Cheese for China. Uh, Mark Fenlon is leading that. Uh, that's a very difficult market to, to crack, actually. Tell us more about that, Jerry. Well, it's a fascinating market. I was over there a couple of years ago, and um, uh, what passes for cheese in China is completely different to what we, we know the product. Um, you know, I came across a product with, uh, which was being, was being market tested with consumers, and it was um, no more, it wasn't remotely like the cheese that we would recognize. And it uh, had an, ome uh, an omega three ingredient in it, and it did taste and smell like fish. So I, the point I'm making is, and I've been saying this all the time, you're not going to break into those markets unless you innovate. So it's it's hugely important, and that's why we're putting so much emphasis in in in, in Moorpark now on building an in food innovation hub and, and so forth. But to get back to your point about the milk price. I mean, the one thing you notice about farmers when the price starts dipping. Uh, they get overly pessimistic, you know, and um, like we keep making the point that the resilience of your system is critically important to help you ride out volatility on the downside. And again, we've demonstrated, I think, over the years that your grass system is a resilient system. Um, but at the same time, and we know this again from Greenfield, uh, the importance of the farmers farmer when he does have a good year hedging in terms of not going out and uh, overspending just because there's one good year you, know, you have to manage the volatility and um, because prices aren't under the basic price isn't under the farmer's control but pat said earlier this is very important i mean price is made up of a lot of things there's the basic price but then there is the credit farmer gets for fat and protein that's the quality dimension which is under the farmer's control as well as scc counts i mean we've made nationally fantastic uh, improvements on SCC, you know, in, this, in, in less than 10 years. Um, so there are dimensions of the price, uh, the quality dimensions, that are very much under the farmer's control, while the basic price isn't. 
And if you look at it from a world scale point of view, I mean, there is no country, there is, look at the forecast going forward, there isn't any massive forecast for increased production throughout the world. There's lots of constraints in lots of parts of the world which you would expect to produce extra milk, say, 10 years ago. And they're under certain constraints now. And there is continuing growth in, in demand. I know it might be modest, but it's still there. So you'd have to say, I mean, we're still a small producer in the world scale. We, we still produce a very high quality product. So there is opportunities there going forward and and just to pick up um on on your you know you talked about efficiencies and and you've defined them in the form of fat protein and 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 higher quality milk in the form of a lower somatic cell count Uh, abigail you mentioned you know that you see and and particularly in the greenfield said there was you were consistently above the average or, or sorry the base milk price so you know what are we seeing on the average farm you know can you quantify the, the step up from base price to what the farmer is actually achieving as a result of better fat and protein. So, I mean, if you look at the better farmers, even for the last few months of this year, okay, we had bad weather for the last few weeks, but those of them that could get out to grass for as long as they could, they were up at 40, 41 cent per litre, which was probably six, seven cent above the base price. So we would always see that in um, when we were in Greenfield Farm and there that we were always six, seven cent above the base price simply because we were able to get up to 90% of the cow's diet was in grass and clover. Um, <clears throat> interestingly enough, uh, one of my discussion groups met Ornua recently and the first line they came out with when we went in, we hope that you're going to continue feeding as much grass in your diet as possible. So we were uh, the farmers were a bit surprised. They said, why are you saying this to us? And they said, well, we can can't market or sell the Kerrygold butter unless you keep feeding grass. And the reason it's yellow and very spreadable is because of our grass-based diet. So when they're marketing, that's really important. So that's going back to keeping our system, not going off the focus and keeping grass in our system. Yeah, And I thought that was uh, uh, one of the great lessons uh, of today from Parik French gave an excellent paper. But that was one of the points he, make, uh, he made to avoid drift in terms of the system. Uh, and you can see that in, I think it's very evident in New Zealand. You know, there is drift there, definitely, away from the reliance on the grass system. And uh, again, that's something we can't afford to to do. Uh, to totally change tact now for a minute and, and reflect back on our, our climate challenge. Um, I read an, an interesting article recently, and I'm not sure if you have a comment on it, but, you know, we're producing a lot of food for export. So, you know, a lot of the food that we're producing in the country, we're not consuming. So this, you know, we're, we have this footprint and we need to reduce it by, you know, 10 to 15 percent over the next 10 years or so. You know, is there any reflection in any of the calculations that have been done globally to reflect, you know, we're not consuming this product, so it is going somewhere else? Yeah, well, I mean, look, that's... That's been well articulated in uh, in, in in the media, and, and uh, there's a glaring example of that. If you like, anomaly is that if you look at the fact that uh, we're paying uh, a carbon tax on our consumption of fossil fuels, for example, in the country, and we other than natural gas, we don't produce fossil fuels. Um, so there's an illogicality there, but I think. What's really important to understand is we're now we're we're locked into an international agreement, at least up until 2030, and uh, um, that's really important that we focus on that. We have international obligations that we have to adhere to, uh, but at the same time, in the background, 
there will be uh, ongoing negotiations. I'm not, uh, I'm a member of the Climate Change Council as well. That particular aspect hasn't come up at the Climate Change Council. Other interesting issues have, which I think will, are more likely to feature in, in revisions of uh, those uh, international agreements, uh, like, for example, the treatment of methane. Like the New Zealanders now have gone on a very different path to, to Europe and they've separated out methane from other greenhouse gases and they have separate targets, a lower target for reducing methane emissions than the other gases. I think that kind of thing is more likely to come on the agenda over the next 10 years or so than uh, the issue of uh, that consumers should be taxed uh, rather than producers. Um, so I, I think that will happen. And I just finally to sum up, if like, you know, just to, to have a think for a second and uh, and we might come to you first, Pat, you know, as we head into 2020 and we're in this reflection phase, you know, over the next few weeks, gearing up for calving 2020, what is your top, like if you could pick out one tip for farmers in terms of, I know last year you called them their resolution. Um, what resolution have you for farmers that, that, you know, they can do better next year? I suppose it's it's around um, the calf issue. Uh, uh, plan properly that uh, your facilities are, are are adequate uh, prior to the start of the calving season, that you have adequate labour, and that you should start sourcing an outlet for your calves uh, before the start of the calving season. Uh, would be one thing that I would say. And Abigail? I would say yourself. You have to look after yourself. That's the most important. So I suppose to take a break at this stage in the year, look back and see where were your pinch points on your own self. Like, did you... Where you exercise in property, nutrition, if you get all those basic things right, the rest of them will be easier and then get yourself organised for next year. And Jerry? Well, I would agree with Pat. I think the biggest risk facing the industry is its reputation, its socialised, as someone called it. And I'd say all dairy farmers, all dairy farmers have to accept responsibility for uh, the greenhouse gas issue and for the calf issue. And they underline all. Because we know we're only dealing with a minority on the calf side that uh, could endanger the whole industry. And to me, that's a big risk. Because we know what we have to do. I mean, there's no mystery what has to be done to manage uh, calves in, a, in a, an appropriate way. It's just ensuring that all farmers line up uh, to that responsibility. I, th I think um, we will wrap it up there and I think, you know, um, you know, speaking to a few people today and indeed a lot of the topics we've covered just highlight how good a job farmers are doing across the country. And, um, you know, as you say, they're not problems, they're not their challenges with the with the with the different aspects of, of um, farming and, and uh, regulation that we face. But it's a challenge that farmers are, are I suppose, prepared and willing to take on. Um, so, you know, the future is bright. And that's it for this week's episode of the Dairy Edge podcast. And my thanks to Jerry Boyle, Abigail Ryan and Pat Dillon for joining me on this week's show. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. You can listen on Apple and Google Podcasts as well as Spotify. And for more information, go to the Chagas website at chagas.ie. I'm Emma-Louise Coffey, and join me next time for your Dairy Edge. <laughs>